The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. That's H as in Harold Lloyd, O as in Orson Welles, and L as in Lillian Gish. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, and MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Today is an exciting episode. Mike Palindrome is here. Return of Mike Palindrome. We've been getting a lot of requests to have Mike. Where's Mike? Where is Mike? Well, Mike is here today. Mike and I, as many of you know, are old friends. We go back a long time. And today, as he and I reach the midpoint of our lives, the middle of the Selva Oscura, the dark wood, as Dante might say, we come across a sign that says, What have ye read? We're going to take a look at the books we've read over the decades. This is a tribute to reading and friendship. And a friendship that really is founded on reading as much as anything. That's coming up. I hope you enjoy it. Gar, I understand you have some interesting news for us. Gar, our producer, has been working on a theme for this episode. I didn't know composing was one of your skills, Gar. <laughs> a theme for the show or, or the episode? Okay. Okay, just this episode. That's wonderful, Gar. Are we going to get themes for every episode now? That would be... I'm flattered. Can we hear it? Is it ready? Can you cue it up? Okay. We're ready. Here we go. The theme for this episode, composed by our very own producer, Gar. Boy, it sounds kind of familiar. Like the sands through the hourglass. Gar. So are the books of our lives. Gar. Gar. Wait, 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 wait. Stop, 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 stop. Gar. Gar, you didn't compose. And that, that's the... I didn't record that. Was that my voice? That, that. Gar. There's more. Okay. Okay, we'll hear the whole thing. Then we'll decide. An homage, an homage to the days of our lives theme. Okay, okay, we'll listen to the whole thing and then we'll decide. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the books of our lives. This is MacDonald Carey. And these are the books of our lives. Gar, I think, I think I know what you did. You took that from the interview, the discussion I had with Mike. I must have said that, books of our lives. And you, you know when you inserted that, you didn't, <laughs> there's no music in the background. You just cut it off. That's, I don't know, this, this is like a, a Photoshop of a, of a gorilla with my face on it. It's, oh, that makes you laugh. Okay. Yeah, behind your hand. I see you laughing behind your hand, Gar. Well, guess what? You're not the only one with a surprise. The interns have recorded you. Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. They caught you laughing. And they record, Gar has a. It's a very unusual laugh. Well, the interns got it on tape. So if you're going to laugh at me, I'm going to play the recording of your laugh. You will be silent no longer, Gar. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you a found sound. Gar laughing. Okay. Okay, that was the first version. And they were able to isolate some of the sound. 
did some good work on this car. You'd be proud of them. Of course, I had to show them how to do everything. They didn't didn't learn this from you. Here we go. Take two. <laughs> A little better, right? But guess what, Gar? They were able to isolate just the sound of your... I know. I know. <laughs> Doesn't seem fair, does it? But they did. Here we go. Let's hear Gar. Just Gar. Oh, that's beautiful. That is a, that is beautiful. That's what I hear. Every time something happens, every time someone criticizes the show, every time I shock myself picking up the pair of headphones, all those things you find so amusing. The time I sat on the pair of scissors. Such a mean laugh. Well, we all... Endure. We all must persevere. Okay, let's start the show. This is Jack Wilson and Mike Palindrome reaching the midpoint of their lives, looking back on a lifetime of books, looking ahead a little bit. Here we go. After this. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the books of our lives. Donald Carey, and these are the books of our lives. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So what do you think we should call this one? I was thinking maybe we'd call it Books of Our Lives. Yeah, that that's good. I mean, uh, yeah, so far. Why, maybe Books of Our books Lives of, so far. Books of Our Lives so far. So yeah. we should explain. We're basically going to take a book for every decade of our life for the first four decades, and then we're going to take a wild card or an at-large bid yeah. that, that can be drawn from any of the decades. And then we can do this again when we're in our 80s. Okay. And the <laughs> <laughs> on the hologram podca- podcast that we do. <laughs> uh, so basically, it lines up for us pretty neatly with the decades as well. So the first book, I think um, you probably had to take something from the 70s. I mean something we re- something we read in the seventies. Something, yeah. yeah, something, yeah, something yeah. we would have read in the seventies. So right. let's set the stage. So you are living in Manhattan, and mm-hmm. did your parents read to you? They did not. They and, didn't. Yeah. Um, actually, there were a couple of arguments at home whether we should even be reading American books. Oh, they thought yeah. they thought you should be reading Korean books. Yeah, because American books were filled with, you know, immoral values. Oh, did yeah. they think they were going to move back to Korea? You know, actually, I didn't. I never knew this, but mm-hmm. apparently, there was a moment where both my parents couldn't take it, and my dad went back to Korea by himself to try it out oh. for three months. Really. And he came back after a month and a half, and he said, I can't do it. I can't live there. 
Really? Couldn't live in yeah. Korea? Yeah, because he was going to stay there for three months and then we were all going to follow. Right. So that never materialized, but he, he said he couldn't take it. Wow. Yeah, he had changed that much. I think, I think we had been in America for about three years. Right, right. So... And you were in Manhattan. That's the other thing that's always always kind of fascinates me that you didn't land in in Iowa or some yeah in the middle of the country, but just stayed right in Manhattan. So where did you get your books? There was a neighbor down the hall, a woman who was a executive at Parker Brothers, hmm. boarding board games, board games. Yeah, sure. And they were that was the thing. Parker yeah. Brothers was huge. Right, so they were like they they were the Apple to IBM's Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley was considered like <laughs> yeah. kind of like you know crotchety and like you know yeah. not very original, exciting games. And Barker Brothers was like the really cool games. Yeah, um, like think, Risk and like I think you could only explain this to kids today to say it's like Xbox and PlayStation or something <laughs> that it. You know, board games, like there'd be television ads for board games and they'd say, brought to you by Parker Brothers. And it, it really was a brand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Milton Bradley, the the art on Milton Bradley always looked kind of like from the 50s and it just seemed a little, uh, but Parker Brothers, I think they had Clue maybe and uh, Payday. I don't know. I'd, yeah, I'd have to too. go through, but. Yeah, and Payday. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's right. They, I mean, they also took risks like, when the movie Krull came out, they made Krull the board game, <laughs> which was actually pretty good. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you had a friend working at Park, Parker Brothers. You were connected. Well she, well, she was in her 60s. Oh, yeah. And she took a shine to my sister and I and me, and she didn't have kids. Uh-huh. And she had a ton of remaindered board games. So she gave, the, gave us board games whenever she saw us. And she also <laughs> gave us old books of hers because she had no kids right and so i think she gave me the hardy boys and, oh yeah and then she would give us also book certificates gift certificates to bookstores in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and there was a great bookstore on third avenue and 28th street um, that had a downstairs and it, i mean it's no longer there but it was right next to video rental place which is such an anachronism i had to explain <laughs> that <laughs> to some colleagues the other day. Right. So what's your pick? Now I'm right. fascinated. So my pick is the Great Brain series <laughs> by <laughs> John, John D. Fitzgerald. And wow. Okay. I have to say, it that series introduced me to so many things. Uh, hypocrisy, mistrusting authority, yep. being duplicitous, thinking it's okay to have complex feelings like you could want to be one up one up someone but at the same time feel sympathetic when they you know for to, for a loser and feeling sympathy for people who didn't have money and because the the books i forget when they were written but they did not hold back like there would be you know kind of a fat kid who got picked on or yeah. a poor kid who smelled i mean you know it'd be amazing to see children's books written um, in, in, in such an open way today. Yeah. And it is, you're right about the complex feeling. So if anyone hasn't heard of the great brain series, it's basically the narrator is this younger brother. He has two older brothers, uh, and the middle brother is the great brain. And he's always, he's, he's got this great brain. He's as smart as adults. And he often is smarter than the adults in town, but he's got this money loving heart. Is how they put it, and he <laughs> he's always trying to do. He'll do anything for money, and he'll basically sell anyone out for money. That his money loving heart is always kind of his downfall. But but when you talk about the complex feelings, it is this uh, thing where you know the narrator knows he's being tricked, and but you're kind of still on the side of the great brain just because uh -huh. he's so clever. And right. you, you almost feel sorry for the kids. I remember feeling like that the narrator was so lucky that he was just part of the game. You know, you'd feel like the other kids in town didn't have as much fun as the narrator because he got to live, you know, close to the great brain and, and be part of it all the time, even though he himself was often always tricked. And the worst parts of the book are when 
the great brain is getting his comeuppance, you know, and, and something really bad is actually happening to the great brain. You just feel awful that he's, he's been brought down, you know, it's this, uh, I don't know. There, there's something so charismatic about him that, uh, uh, I mean, you like all the characters, but there's something just, uh, the engine is running full throttle when the great brain is in the middle of one of his capers. It's so much fun. Yeah. And, and, and the payoffs are terrific. They, you know, there, there's this, when a kid misbehaves, the parents don't talk to the kid. It's called silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, in case, you oh, know, I'm yeah. sure it's not practiced today much, but, and then when the silent treatment is lifted, Oh, I loved those scenes <laughs> when the mom turns to the kid and says, do you want, yeah. you want some butter? Yeah. It's, it's like, ah, oh, the silent yeah. treatment have been lifted. Cause the parents are so good in those books and, um, there's such vivid characters and aunt Bertha who lives with them and uncle Mark, the sheriff. And it's a great pick. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really showed me that books can be more entertaining than friends. And yeah. that, that I remember thinking that, that I'd rather sit curled up with this book than <laughs> hang out with my friends. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to paint a different scene of myself as a reader. Uh, as uh, as you know, I didn't grow up in Manhattan. I grew up in Wisconsin in a small town. We didn't have a lot of money, and so we loaded up on books at the library. We had a, a local public library, but then there was also a library in a, a nearby city, I guess you could call it, where my father worked, um, where he taught high school. And then in the summers, he had a job and he cleaned typewriters, which was a big, yeah, that was a big job back then. You, not a big job, but like that was his job where he and his boss would go around to, uh, high schools all over and pick up, you know, the 50 or 60 typewriters that they had for their typing class. And, uh, then he would bring them home and, or he would, they would take them to their shop and clean them with this ammonia and all this other really toxic fumes. And so in the summers I would go in with him and spend a half a day there or something. And it was right by this big, uh, public library. And Mm -hmm. so I would have three or four hours where I would just go over to the library and, and hang out and read books and, and, uh, you know, look at microfiche newspapers or whatever I could find to do. And then we'd take a big stack of books home. And then we would, in the fall, we would go shop for uh, school clothes. And we'd go to this big mall in Madison. And my mom would go shop and my dad would take us to a movie. And and we'd just kind of kick around for a little while. And we would always go to this place called Buddy Squirrels, which was, <laughs> which was Buddy Squirrels Nut Shop. And then we'd buy a little a little sack of nuts. And then we were done with that. It was almost time, you know, my mom, it was almost time to meet my mom. And we would go to the Walden bookstore. And we would be allowed to get one book, which we, <laughs> we couldn't read on the way home. That was the deal because I guess we probably did it once and we were probably both finished. My sister and I probably both finished the book before we got home. My parents were probably thinking, <laughs> you know, we didn't even make it to the didn't even make it back to the house so that was the only rule but otherwise we could pretty much get whatever we want and the book i'm going to (laughs) choose it's the great brain series oh my god (laughs) i was gonna say you remembered aunt Aunt bertha i was impressed by your recall (laughs) maybe that's why we're friends mike maybe this is uh maybe this is it i can't believe we both chose it and you know when i chose it i kind of thought i wonder if he's going to take the great brain and i thought i might put down an alternate (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, nope, I'll just go with The Great Brain too. It's such a great uh, series. I read them so many times. I think my favorite are probably uh, More Adventures of the Great Brain or Me and My Little Brain. And then The Great Brain at the Academy. Is uh, really, yeah. Uh, I, I, I could never forget him copying the key yeah. <laughs> by using a bar of soap and making an impression, the whittling wood. I yeah. was like, that sounds so easy. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me give it a shot. And I yeah. was like, wait a second, this is impossible. And just and, that he sets up the candy store and yeah. he's always, you know, I, oh, I went yeah. through this. I I don't know if I should <laughs> confess this, but I used to have this, this uh, habit, I guess, um, usually on Sunday mornings, I guess when I should have been going to church. And instead 
I would bring out my bank and I would set up this little tray in the living room. And while everyone in the family was watching television, I poured out my money and I would stack it into piles. And I would see, <laughs> you know, how many dollars that I owned. And it was, I think it was, I don't know if, if that came because of the great brain series and the way they were always earning money and, and making deals for money, or if that was in me and maybe that's part of the appeal of the great brain series. I don't, it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't remember which one was first, but I do have just such good memories of rainy days and snowy days and me in my room with the shag carpeting and kind of tucked under the covers and just reading these books over and over and over, just fascinated by the great brain and all of his adventures. Yeah. I think in one of the, one of my old uh, journals as a kid, I kept track of how much money he had made. (laughs) (laughs) I was showing that to my wife. She was like, what? He made like 17 cents that day. (laughs) I was like, yeah, but this is like, that's a lot of money. Oh yeah. You could buy a, down at the what was it the zion's uh co-op you could buy like a candy for half a penny yeah (laughs) he had some big money makers too he had that raft that he built and he had that that shoot the shoot where he had a he built a roller coaster that came off their barn and uh (laughs) remember that it's some kid got really hurt (laughs) (laughs) so i can't remember if that was where that kid lost his leg or uh Something oh, right, and something. he got, he got a stump, right? Yeah, that yeah. was I was and shocked then, by that. And then the great brain went over and showed him all the different things he could do. Actually, this is a really that's a great uh, story. It's yeah. an amazing scene. My my son was just reading this, and I was looking through the book, and I just couldn't believe it because it, so the guy gets a peg leg, mm-hmm. as they call it, and he asks. John, the narrator, JD, to come over and help him to commit suicide. And they plan all these different ways and they're going to put him in a sack and throw him into the river. And they, they go through all these things and, and JD keeps saying, you know, like, well, I, I I guess if that's what he wanted, I had to be a good friend. And, you know, he's going through all this stuff. And then, and then Tom later in the chapter uh, steps up and basically says, Look, everything you're complaining about not being able to do, I'll show you how to do and 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 show you how to do it better. And he puts on the leg and he shows him how to run and he shows him how to throw and all the different things that you know that it just takes a different technique. And then I think if I remember right, I think Tom might win a bunch of bets with people once he's trained Andy up. And then he he bets everybody else that you know Andy can do something better than they can, and they don't believe him. But Tom has showed him how to do it, so he he wins a bunch of money that way. Ah, <laughs> oh, such good books. Okay, let's move on to the eighties. Uh, I'll let you pick. Now, this is you were you were living it up in Manhattan in the cocaine uh, <laughs> in the bright lights, big city eighties. Oh my gosh, that's so funny you said that because so my pick is Bright Lights, Big City <laughs> by Jay McInerney. You know, when you asked me about Manhattan and I said The Great Brain, I mean, you know, it, it was such an escapist book for me right. living in Manhattan, you yeah. know, the, the oh, skyscrapers. Yeah. It's and, out in Utah. It's like in yeah. the 19th century. It's it's a real rural, dusty. So, so so Bright Lights, Big City is is sort of my my library moment. I think I read... Franzen has an essay in Serious Readers and says that every serious re- reader has some kind of library moment in mm-hmm. their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I read Bright Lights, Big City, and I was so taken by it that I, I went to the public library and I pulled down all the periodical volumes that had McInerney's short stories mm. and I photocopied all of them. <laughs> and I would just sit and read them over and over again. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's funny because like I'm 15 years old and I'm relating to a narrator who's become disenchanted with his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow I just, I, I understood the antsiness of people living in the city and just thinking they had everything figured out and having a lot of money, but being unhappy, like really philosophically unhappy. Yeah. And that book, I mean, it, it came out, it was one of the first like trade paperbacks, I think. Right. So yeah. it, it came out and it just seemed like 
it was probably aimed at someone like you. Like you probably felt like uh, I did when I I turned on, you know, Late Night with David Letterman or something, and I was thirteen or fourteen, and you just feel like, oh, this guy is he's he's not part of that other generation. McInerney and that book, it didn't feel like Norman Mailer or whoever the New York establishment literature was. He he was kind of an outlaw. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, he and Tam Janowitz and Brett Easton Ellis, and I read all of their work, Slaves in New York and Less Than Zero. And I mean, it's probably great for a 15-year-old. I can't yeah. say I've ever gone back to them, but I think they, they were all writing about kind of an, the utopian endless evening where mm-hmm. you would have like this incredible time and great conversation and there would be love and and around probably around this time I saw um Whit, Whit Stillman's first movie Metropolitan mm-hmm. and even though that which is about the Manhattan debutante scene and even though I had n- nothing to do with that I think there was like this core of pretension that yeah. I could relate to <laughs> <laughs> well you were surrounded by it yeah right i mean your school and you must have seen it in in people who drifted in and out of your life in one way or another yeah i mean I, and the book really um i mean i'll get to this later on in the the podcast but the book made me think i should try writing because that was the only way i could feel closer to mm. his work yeah I would try to, I would recopy some of his paragraphs, which I was telling somebody recently. He was like, you picked Bright Lights, Big City to recopy. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah. But you know, Bright Lights, Big City, it makes writing seem achievable. Yeah, it's it's written in the, it's one of the few books written in uh, second person. Yeah, it's well written, but it, it, feels like something that a 15 year old I could see where you'd feel like you could tackle it yeah oh, okay great pick you know the funny thing as I was thinking through the books in the 80s is I realized that I met you in 1990 mm. so I could draw right. this sort of clean line because I think Bright Lights Big City for example was one that you probably urged me to read uh, <laughs> but it would have been after the 80s were over so all those could be out and I think the same same is probably true for Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Salinger and a bunch of others that I didn't really get around to until 1990. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back to high school, which was a really awkward time for me. I struggled with feeling like I was headed for college and everyone else around me wasn't, and they that I didn't fit in that way, and, and they kind of let me know it. And it was the years, I guess it was in junior high when I threw the spelling bee, which is still probably the worst thing I ever did. (laughs) I was a big reader, but I just, I went through this phase for about four or five years where all I read were, were things about sports, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the safe middle ground where I could still fit in, but still indulge my passion for reading. And so the books were generally not very good. But I had this math teacher who was really unconventional, and he was a big reader, and he pointed me toward a few books that he thought would engage me on a different level. And one of them, I remember, was the Kenneth Roberts historical novels, which I've never heard of anybody else reading them. I think they were probably huh. really popular in the maybe the 40s or something. And then, But then the one that he gave me, which really triggered something in me, was Descartes' Discourse on Method. And for some reason, that book just went right to me. It had this faded blue hardcover. You know those hardcover, the books with, they're hardcovers, but you can almost bend them. You know, you can bend the cover. It's like this little pocket-sized book. And maybe the cover is just so old that it's gotten soft. It didn't have a dust jacket, but it, it had a title that was embossed, but it was so faded you had to squint to see that it was actually there. And it was just a signature of Rene Descartes on the cover. Uh, it <laughs> felt so old. You know, it was probably from the, I don't know, 30s or 40s. It was in our school library. But it felt so old. It seemed like a first edition, you know, from the 1600s <laughs> or something. <laughs> and I just wrestled with Descartes and what was in it. I was probably about 16, and I thought I saw what he was 
what he was getting at and where I, I thought he was taking some logical leaps. And I just engaged with that book in this way. And it wasn't long after that that I was taking some college courses when I was in high school and then I was in college and it really seemed like the start of something for me was reading Descartes and then after that high school was sort of over and college was kind of beginning and I was just on a completely different path from where I was when I was 14 or 15 and I thought I would become a sports writer or something instead I was going to be you know just headed off to college and engaging with as many great books as I could. I mean, that reminds me of um, some of the books. This isn't on my list, but some of the books I bought without it that were not recommended because there are plenty of books that I've, I've bought over the years that have been recommended. But to walk into a bookstore, because mm. there were so many bookstores when I was a kid and as a teenager, mm-hmm. seeing a book, leafing through it and thinking, I'll just buy it. Yeah. And I did that with A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes, mm. the French structuralist philosopher. Yeah. And what, I think was, what was the bookstore? It was Rizzoli. Oh, is, yeah. Um, I, mean, I don't know, maybe there is one that, uh, but it used to be in the old uh, historic building on 57th. It's since miss, moved. I don't know if there is another Rizzoli left in New York. I mean, mm, um, yeah. But the book was so above my head <laughs> that I think that's why <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I would and and I've I've never finished it. I've, it's just a diction. It's this dictionary of love, um, and but I've gone back and read different excerpts over the course of, you know, decades. Right. But right. I bought that when I was fifteen, and I didn't. I I knew nothing about Bart's. I yeah. just saw it. and I picked it up. Yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a great thing. The discovery of it when you're. I remember encountering Nicholson Baker, the mezzanine, and I had never heard anything about it. I was in a bookstore in Italy, and it just jumped out at me. And I think there was a blurb on the cover that says something like, Andy Warhol would have loved this book. He would have bought 100 copies. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, I guess I could buy one. And uh, took it home, and it was completely different, and it felt really fresh and new. And uh, it was just a, it was great because it felt like, you know, I felt like I had just serendipitously run across it okay so the 90s i found the 90s to be the toughest the toughest one to choose i i think i did yeah the most reading. i agree i agree with you i i i uh, I, I was reading in every direction that's yeah. what i was thinking yep uh, i you know i was trying to reach I, I felt like i was behind yeah and needed to read as much as i could and people were making recommendations and yep and there, um, you had enough time. I mean, that was the other thing. By the time I got to the 30s and becoming a parent and everything, I just, you know, you have to really narrow things down. But in the 20s, it seems like you don't have any, I mean, I always felt like I didn't have anything better to do than to read. And I'd read a book a day <laughs> or maybe more. You know, I yeah. might read 10 books in a week. And it just felt like you had to read everything by a certain author or everything that was on any kind of list or that anyone would talk about. or And I just wanted to read so much. And so thinking back to that decade was really tough. So what did you pick? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the 20s, are, that was when I read Proust. That, there were just so many books that it was hard. But I, I went with Magic Mountain. Because, <laughs> good, good. Because I think it's, probably the book that made me want to become like seriously become a writer. Um, <laughs> and it's in case, you know, Thomas Mann, I, I also, it's probably one of the first books where I was like, I, I just want to know everything about Thomas Mann. Mm-hmm. I, well, I, you know, and I was fascinated how he, he was a closeted homosexual and mm-hmm. he was an egomaniac. He used to write first drafts and then, gather his wife and three kids and make them listen to his first draft that that evening. <laughs> and, and how old were his kids? <laughs> I, think was, I don't think they were in their 20s. I think yeah. they were like I'm talking like, you know, like 11 11, <laughs> 11 13 17, you know. Um, right. And I I just I guess what I'm saying is I admired his life, mm-hmm. the way he was so devoted to literature. Um, and he had befriended Adorno and Schoenberg and when he, before he wrote Dr. Faustus and it just seems like 
he was this example of someone who had written not 20 books, but three, I mean, more than three, but three incredibly influential books, Budden Brooks, Dr. Faustus, and Magic Mountain. Mm. And I would throw in Death in Venice. Uh, yeah, I mean, his short stories too, yeah. yeah. And so it was kind of like, I felt like, you know, it was a bit of a gauntlet being, you know, thrown down that if you want to be a writer, if you if you take literature seriously, there are these books you have to read. And part of it was in my head, I'm sure. Um, but I, I've since read Magic Mountain four times. And I, I think it's it really is the perfect book to read when you've graduated college. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's funny, but I would say I am probably three for three on the books I was I was predicting that you would choose. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably, I'll see if I can go four for four after I go through my book from the 90s. But I know Magic Mountain is just, uh, it's, I mean, your love for for the Magic Mountain is one of the most powerful uh, aspects of my life. <laughs> I definitely, you know what I love is when I'm, um, at, at, out for drinks or at a party and someone mentions Thomas Mann and then I mention you know how it usually goes a conversation where somebody mentions a writer or a book and you mention something to show that you just acknowledge it and to yeah. be cordial and then they mention a little detail and then I usually just break out some crazy you know <laughs> expository thing and there's just complete silence <laughs> You know, I was just reading a bunch of uh, Primo Levi for an episode I did on Primo Levi a couple weeks ago, and yeah. he has a story in there, and this this is kind of what Magic Mountain is for me. He has a story in there where he meets this girl when he's a he's like a teenager, and he meets her, and they bond because he sees that she has this book, and uh-huh. all he sees is I think like the last two letters, like ick. I end, you know, of the magic mountain. Like he, he he only sees part of the word as it's peeking out of her bag, but he says, I knew what that book was, you know? And, and, uh, I, when I read a story like that, I think, Oh, Mike would probably like this. He'd probably like this just because it's people paying uh, tribute to magic mountain. Yeah. I mean, so if people haven't read it, I I will say that, um, my wife made a great, uh, observation about Magic Mountain, it, 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 it's it's a bit of a, a stand-in for college because mm-hmm. you have a bunch of people who are either sick or pretending to be sick without jobs <laughs> and then there for years right. um, allegedly improving themselves and each other. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and, but there are some people who are actually learning. So, I mean, that's to me, it kind of encapsulates college. Yeah, it's a good pick. Okay, so I'm in the 90s. Like I said, this is tough. I, you know, These are the years where I was reading a ton of uh, Nabokov and Tolstoy and Austin and all those Londoners that we read, Amos and Barnes and all those guys, and, and catching up on Updike and Roth and Bellow and Toni Morrison. And, and, then, and then, yeah, just trying to read for history, you know, like Emily Dickinson and Edgar Allan Poe, and I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I found it to be kind of like trying to choose one face out of a big crowd. Every time I would look at one, there'd be another book that would be clamoring for my attention, and so many of them were so important to me at that period. And I decided that I would try to pick one that I haven't talked about a lot on the podcast before, so I ruled out The End of the Affair and Madame Bovary and and some of the others that I've uh, gone into in a little more detail. And I decided that I would choose uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson, (laughs) where it was a book that I had when I was in Taiwan. I was reading it on the mattress I had on the floor. I was living alone, and when I started living alone, the guy who rented me the apartment said, oh, have you ever lived alone before? And he was married, 
he was a little bit older than me and and I said, "Yeah, I guess I haven't." You know, or I guess I I had in college in the dorm for a year, but mostly I had roommates and hadn't really ever had a whole apartment to myself. And he said, "You might never have one again." <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and he's like, "You got to do it at least once." You know, and so I realized uh that when I do live alone, it's just me and a ton of books. That's basically uh I had them piled on the on the floor and I would lie on the mattress and just read my way down the stack. And Boswell's life of Johnson was just, it was like those two were keeping me company and I was riveted and just in love with literature and in love with everything Johnson said. And when he would have one of his comments on someone else or some other writer, I just wanted to run out to the bell. I had a little balcony and I just wanted to run out on the balcony and just, shouted out to the world you know but it was it was taiwan so no one would really have understood what i was saying and i'd I'd probably be choking on the pollution anyway and have to run back inside but it was just it was the feeling i had of i've got to get this off my chest i gotta go announce this to the world of what a funny thing dr johnson had just said and it was so inspiring for uh, just how smart he was and how what a great critic he was, but also just how important they believed literature was, the two of them. It was just, it meant everything to them. Being in love with reading was like being in love with life itself. He has that famous quote about London, you know, whoever tires of London is tired of life. But you could probably say that about books and literature too. He really was this this great figure in the world of letters and it really inspired me to to follow my instincts and just keep reading. I've got to read it. I know I've said that before. But... You've got to read it. It, it was so good. And yeah. then when I left Taiwan and I was traveling, it seemed like, you know, I'd be in China or Tibet or something and there'd be these guest houses and at night we'd be in the restaurants and there'd just be this dim electric light or maybe even candles Mm-hmm. And everyone would be talking and talking about what they, what books they were reading and what they were seeing and, and where they came from and what their plans were. And it felt kind of like being in these ale houses in London in the, in the 1700s and just being with Johnson and all of his circle, you know, it felt kind of like that. We'd have these, you know, we'd have the wine flowing or the beer flowing and, and, uh, just talking about everyone's life and, and, uh, literary passions if I ever found somebody who also was reading something good while they were on the bus or on the you know on the back of the truck or however they were getting around the country and it was just uh it really informed my experience in my 20s was was uh reading Life of Johnson okay so on to the 2000s now I'm three for three but I've I've only I haven't really picked any of your picks in advance so I'm going to go out on a limb, <laughs> and I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to predict it. Uh-huh. I think you'll get it right, but I feel like I'm gonna change it. Just to... <laughs> yeah. Well, so. now you you limited yourself to 2000 to 2010, right? Yeah. So uh, that would rule out Elena Ferrante. Right. Right. She would have been after. Right. So I am going to say I could go with Moravia, but mm-hmm. I'm going to say Javier Marias, A Heart So White. <laughs> it was close. I was going <laughs> to, well, let me set the stage. I mean, I attended the uh, an MFA program in my 30s, and in my mind, I'd always thought that the divide between contemporary and classics was 1924 which I I was corrected that is completely wrong (laughs) (laughs) because 1924 is when Magic Mountain was written 1922 is when Wasteland was was written so in my mind like pre-Wasteland pre-Magic Mountain is classic everything else is contemporary and at the MFA program I met plenty of people who had not read a single novel before Kerouac Mm. Mm-hmm. So I felt really behind in terms of I couldn't take part in conversations at bars because people would be talking about Laurie Moore or you know Ann Beattie or whatever and yeah, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, I'd never read these people, and I, I really didn't have any interest in it. So, 
but then I started reading um, contemporaries, and I was going to say Murakami's Norwegian Wood because I read it three times yep. uh, in my 30s. But instead, you know, I I, I mentioned that, but I, I the book I think that really mattered in my 30s to me was War and Peace. Oh. Yeah, because I read that when my daughter was born, uh-huh. and I, I read that with her mostly on my chest sleeping. Uh-huh. And it took me about two months to read. And after I was done, I remember thinking, I love that book, but not that I, I can now die, but I don't really feel the need to read big, important books. Yeah. And maybe it was like the combination of ha- having read all the contemporaries in the MFA program, but it, it was kind of like the last big book that I felt like I had to read. Yeah, and it's it's such a pillar of literature. You know, it's it's just a, a titanic in literature. It's like it's like reading Proust or Ulysses or something. You just think, well, nobody nobody took it farther than that. Yeah, and it, I think it really put me at ease, put mm-hmm. my mind at ease that you know that there was a bit more perspective I had in my thirties that I didn't have to read. That it was actually, if I wanted to be a writer and I want to write, it's more important to write than to read War and Peace. Right. And, you know, as important and as good as War and Peace was, you know, I started to really try to balance, try to think in terms of, you know, a zero-sum game. Like, if I do this, I can't do this. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of amazing how we've, I would say that our lives have intersected basically for one period, really, when we were at college together, and then it's you know intertwined with letters and visits and phone calls and everything since then, emails and everything. But what's amazing to me is how similar the, that this list is turning out to be. <laughs> I chose the Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series uh-huh. with Captain Jack Aubrey and the Naval Surgeon slash intelligence agent, Stephen Maturan. And I wrote down, you know, I'm tempted to pick one of the books that I read to my kids a million times, just, you know, as a children's book, because <laughs> that was such a big deal for me in the, in the 2000s. Right. But instead I chose this and the series of books, which I, I read them all in the 2000s. And I I wrote down in my notes, I was so immersed in them that I could read them while holding a baby and rocking in a chair or pacing the room to put the baby <laughs> to sleep. And it is it is this vivid thing. You're just in the fog of sleeplessness and, and parenting, but knowing that, you know, there's something about a sleeping baby that's so, uh, it makes the whole world at peace. And then knowing that you can open up a book and quietly turn the pages and just be immersed in this other world and and back in the world of grown-ups and adults you know that in your mind can can go from just worry and and just the the instinct of trying to keep a baby alive and happy and can then go into the world of you know grown-ups doing grown-up things and and the language of the books and and all of that, it's it's just a beautiful thing to be reading with a baby sleeping on your chest. You know, there were moments when I just thought, oh, she's finally fallen asleep. Now I get to read four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my father-in-law coming over and being like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, my, my left foot fell asleep, but it woke up, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the at-large bid... Oh, wait, no, our 40s. Oh, oh well, I thought yeah. I thought that was the... I only chose four. Oh, okay. I thought we were... I thought our at-large bid was our fifth. But if you have one from your 40s, go ahead. Um, Wait, did we, did we choose four already? Yeah. One, two, three. You did The Great Brain. Oh, yeah, you're right. You did Bright okay, Lights, okay. Big City, Magic Mountain, oh, and War okay. and Peace. I, I went, you know... What you were saying, I, I tried to pick somebody we haven't talked about. Um, that, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I didn't pick Moravia. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was a very good guess. Um, I, I picked Nausgaard, Carlo V. Nausgaard. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just 
read that he's now made Ladbrook's uh, Nobel Prize odds list for the first time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he comes in at uh, I think sixty-six to one. Hmm. So Mirakami is um, four to one. Four to one. Yeah. Yeah, he's got to win. Yeah. But so. Nausgaard, I mean, he's got the Scandinavian thing going, but he's also, I think it's just taking people time to read him in order to, to kind of get some momentum going. Yeah, I mean, I've just fin- I'm about to finish volume five, and volume six is coming in at 1,100 pages. That's coming out next year. Right. So let's see. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he got... Uh, basically a PhD in English literature, except he didn't do his orals, I think. And he was telling me that Nausgaard um, reminded him of the stuff he had read about Kant's aesthetics. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) wait a second. (laughs) And he was like, are you familiar with Kant's aesthetics? And I was like, no, not not really. (laughs) But I think there's something, I think, you know, having read enough Navsgard, I think what he's getting at is there's something about the payoff in Navsgard that's unlike anything, Hmm. even even Proust, because Proust has the length of Navsgard, but Proust has this incredibly, this incredible landscape, the social landscape mm-hmm. of types and classes. Right. And Nausgaard has none of that. Nausgaard has these little kind of whiny, strange, sad moments, and then these just profound epiphanies. So the, the whiny, strange, sad moment might be like his iron at his hotel doesn't work. Or he's trying to buy a bag, he's trying to buy beer and then it starts to snow yeah. and <laughs> he buys the beer, but they only have a bag, a plastic bag. So he's carrying these like bag, he's carrying a bag of beer and it's snowing and he's slipping. And, and I mean, he walks through the snow with a bag of beer for about 65 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and people... Right. People, I've heard people say, oh, that scene with him buying the beer, that's, you know, that was too much. And other people say, like, that scene was so beautiful when he finally gets to that party and he hugs his friend. And his friend's just like, why are you hugging me? Like, we're both men. Yeah. You know, and (laughs) so. he made it. Uh, Okay, well, that's a good pick. And that's going to continue through your 40s. That's the other, that's the other good thing. You know that that's going to be a part of the decade uh, for you. So. I will then jump in with my at-large pick, and then I'll let you close with your at-large pick. Okay. So I was tempted to take another one from the 90s just because there were so many, and I thought of Humboldt's Gift, which was really important, and Borges, and all of these people that I kept returning to again and again. But again, I I didn't want to pick something I've talked about too much on the podcast. So I decided to take uh, Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. Uh Yeah, and I I know uh, I must have loved this book because I gave it away several times, and several people I think gave it to me. And and Rilke, I don't know if you remember this. I think uh, the first time I encountered it was in a course that I think you and I had had taken together called uh, Towards Modernity. Do you remember that? It was on the assigned reading list for that course. Yeah, and I just copied out a couple of passages here just to. give people a flavor of it if they haven't read it or haven't read it in a while. And here's a a great quote from there. Uh, Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Live in the question. It's just a perfect kind of, uh, perfect kind of prose for people who are young, you know, college age or just out of college and they're trying to figure out what to do. And Rilke says at one point, quote, Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery, any depression, since after all you don't know what work these conditions are doing inside you? Why do you want to persecute yourself with the question of where all this is coming from and where it is going, since you know, after all, that you are in the midst of transitions and you wished for nothing so much as to change? 
If there's anything unhealthy in your reactions, just bear in mind that sickness is the means by which an organism frees itself from what is alien. So one must simply help it to be sick, to have its whole sickness, and to break out with it, since that is the way it gets better. It's just, uh, it's just great. It's a book. It's a good gift for people who are graduating from college, and it's yeah. got these sort of life lessons about, you know, enjoy the ups, enjoy the downs. Like that's part of living life and and embracing change and embracing sorrow and embracing grief and everything that the world is going to throw at you is all part of um part of the joy of being alive we should do a i I agree that's a great book to give we should do a christmas episode on gift books yeah best books to give as gifts because i've gotten a lot of mileage giving the metamorphosis to Mm. teenage teenage cousins yeah yeah, they, that's a, they, that's they a come good back one. to me and they say like, "This is a classic. This is so readable." <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. And then you can also, I mean, books are becoming kind of rare enough now that you um, you can choose things that are like they're just really nice. You know, really nice covers and really nice. They're really nice objects. It's nice to open yeah. a package and and get a gift. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm sorry. Open <laughs> open a package and get a book. Um, okay, so what was your at-large pick? So it's funny you mentioned Rilke because my at-large pick was the poet that I think really kind of jump-started. I mean, I, I had taken poetry classes in college, but this poet jump-started my interest in poetry post-college, um, and it's Paul Salon, mm. the German-Czech poet who, yeah. like Primo Levi, survived the concentration camps, lived for many years after and then committed suicide. Yeah. Um, but he has this poem called Death Fugue. And I had the opportunity to hear Stanley Kunitz read Death Fugue um, before Kunitz passed away. And it was a packed auditorium. It was almost like a, a rock concert. It was a packed auditorium and people listened to Kunitz read, and there was afterward, there was an explosion of applause. And so I'll read a little bit of it, because it really is so accessible, but it has that um, heightened language that you love, that you know that one loves about poetry. It's, mm-hmm. So it begins like this, Black mi- milk of morning, we drink you at dusk time. We drink you at noontime and dawn time. We drink you at night. We drink and drink. We scoop out a grave in the sky where it's roomy to lie. And it has this like incredible repetition where it just says, we drink you and drink you. Hmm. So that was, that was my at-large pick. Okay. that's And when did you encounter that one? Um, I think late 20s. Uh-huh. I actually... I. I uh, was in a cafe writing and the bartender came or it was like a bar uh, cafe and he came over to me and he asked me what I was doing and I said I was writing and he was very skeptical and he said something like, oh, everybody writes, whatever. (laughs) And then one day he saw me reading some poetry and he was like, oh, you like that? You know Paul Salon? And I was like, no. He was like, oh my God, you don't know Paul Salon? So he lent me his uh, <laughs> Paul Salon's Thread Sons. Ah. And after I was done, I told him it was amazing. Yeah. You know, here it is. And he said, you keep it. I have like five copies of it. <laughs> I was going to say, so th- yeah. wait, this was like a bartender? Yeah. And he was going to loan you a book? Yeah. So you must have really been a regular. Yeah, I'd gone there. I probably was there every morning for <laughs> about a couple hours. I'm I'm friends with him now, but we kind of laugh at how he was just so sick of people coming in, allegedly writing. Yeah, but then just surfing the web or being on their phone, and right. he was like, "They're not gonna. They're never. They're not writing." So he he was very skeptical. <laughs> so. Okay, that's a great pick. Well, this is, I feel, how do you feel? I mean, I, I feel like no matter how life is going for me and every other aspect of life in the in the aspect of reading good books, I feel like I've had a pretty full one so far. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was tempted to pick some books that I find to be better than better company than people. Mm. Um, and I was thinking of <laughs> Lori Moore. I think there's some nights yeah. where I just think Lori Moore is like the perfect companion. Yeah. You'd rather, you'd rather so, be with Lori Moore than the, the party that you're at or the, yeah. or the table, the dinner table full of, uh, you know, yeah. work colleagues or something. Like I have a friend who is, is strangely, is very antisocial and we'll be at a party and he'll say like, time to go. And I'll say, why, what are you going to do? And he was like, I'm just going to go home and like read some Henry James to get this party out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. And you know, is it, is it overly uh, ambitious of us to think that maybe a podcast could do that as well? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I as you know, I think if if we let down our preconceptions about what literature should do, then you know, I think anything can 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 open us up. I used to not think, oh, you can't eat and read lit- literature at the same time. If it is <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, because you you'd be distracted by the chewing. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not like it's it's not a magazine. You can't eat and read read at the same time. So no, I think I kind of look at it the other way, which is that I kind of following uh, Hemingway's. I think he pointed this out that your the experience of reading can be a life experience. Yeah, no, you I know? agree. And so I look at it as I'm gonna you know, whatever I'm doing, if I can pull out a book, I'll yeah. just, I'm, it, it's not separate from life. It's part of it. And that's just going to be part of the experience as well. And, and the, the good example, I think you and I just chose is having infants and taking care of them, but having a book be part of that experience. And it, it just feels very rich and I'm very nostalgic for that period of reading while holding a baby in my arms. I, I now read when I walk which is, oh yeah, you know, I, I used to think that was kind of silly because you, yeah. you're going to miss stuff, but I find it very relaxing. Okay, so let's end things there. And like you said, I think we should get together uh, when we're in our 80s and see what it is that struck us uh, in the decades between now and then. Yeah, I'll probably be reading like H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he and Philip K. Dick are in my future. <laughs> right yeah okay well thanks mike thanks jack okay that's gonna do it for this episode of the history of literature we'll be back next time oh we have a good one lined up You should subscribe now if you haven't already. You won't want to miss it. And we're getting close to episode 100, which will hopefully be a little special or a lot special, as the case may be. Find us on Facebook or at historyofliterature.com. But really, just find us right here. However you found this episode, find the next one. Or the last one. We like readers and visitors and commenters, but our true lifeblood are the listeners. That includes you, my friend. You sitting at your computer, or sitting in your car, or sitting on your exercise bike, or lying in a ditch waiting for the pain to go away. I'm here for you. I'm here for all of you. I was here last time you were in this position. I'm here this time, and I'll be here next time. Maybe we need to work on this. Those of you who are spending a lot of your time in ditches... Some changes may need to be made. But if not, it's okay, too. I'm not here to judge. I'm the guy lying oh. in the ditch with a towel over his head. Oh, God. Where, that, that, was, that is an old classic. Oh, that's embarrassing. Can't believe it. That's how things were when we started, wasn't it? Oh, man. I thought we agreed not to play that clip anymore. Didn't we have that agreement, Gar? Can we agree now 
Let's take that one off of our playlist, okay? I'm not the guy in the ditch with the towel over my head. I've grown. I've grown. Thank you, everyone. I'm the guy lying in the ditch with a towel over his head. (laughs) You are truly the cross I bear. Only I don't bear you gladly. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.